This is an ABC podcast. It was 2.03am on the 26th of September when a few small lines suddenly appeared on seismometers around the Baltic Sea. The machines in Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Germany and Norway are meant to detect earthquakes, but this didn't look like an earthquake. The line on the machine showed a big shake, but then something that looked more like hissing. The Danish government wasn't sure what it was, but they had a hunch. The explosion seemed to have happened on the sea floor, right where a cluster of gas pipelines pass. The pipes run in pairs. One pair is called Nord Stream 1, the other pair is called Nord Stream 2. The Danish government sent an F-16 fighter jet to check it out. The F-16 pilot confirmed their suspicions. A circle of bubbles a kilometre wide was fizzing on the surface of the sea. The company which operates the Nord Stream system reported that the pressure in one of their pipes had dropped to nearly zero. The Danish Maritime Authority shut the area down. No ships were allowed in a 10-kilometre zone around the leak site. Five hours later, it happened again. This time, several explosions had gone off at once, right on the sea border between Denmark and Sweden, hitting three of the four pipes. Now, as Bond villain Goldfinger says, once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, three times is enemy action. These pipes run from St. Petersburg, along the seafloor, all the way to the German coast. They weren't operating, but they had the capacity to satisfy all of Germany's gas requirements and more. Someone had sabotaged these pipelines. But who and why? I'm Matt Bevan, and this is Russia If You're Listening. When Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, he set in motion massive changes to the way the world's energy is bought and sold. It's thrown markets into chaos and may cause millions of people in Europe to struggle to stay warm through the coming winter. Why are people as far away as Sri Lanka and Sydney paying more for energy because of a war in Ukraine? Today, a look at some mysterious explosions at the bottom of the Baltic Sea. There are a number of suspects for who set it off, all with a motive. Who has the most to gain from a long, cold winter? It's an Agatha Christie-style murder mystery. Several suspects, all with a clear motive. Everyone was pointing fingers at each other. Ukraine has accused Russia of an attack on the Nord Stream gas pipelines in the Baltic Sea, which used to supply most of Europe's gas. Everyone was denying responsibility. The motives are classic Agatha Christie. Power, money, jealousy. So here's my plan. I'll bring the suspects together into the drawing room and much like Hercule Poirot, I'll outline their motives. Okay, you ready? Oh, and I'm not going to do the accent. First, Germany. Famous for 
Oktoberfest, schnitzel, sausages, and nothing else I can really think of at the moment. Oh, and it's also a prolific user of Russian gas. And prolific might actually be underselling it. Germany is actually the world's biggest importer of natural gas, and Russia is the biggest exporter. Germany's economy and population relies massively on that gas to run their factories, heat their homes, make their electricity, and cook their food. From that fact alone, you'll probably jump to the conclusion that it's unlikely Germany had anything to do with the explosions, and you would probably be right. After all, why would they want to damage their own industry and cause untold suffering to their population by making them choose between crippling energy bills or shivering through winter? No. The reason Germany is here with us in the room of suspects is because Germany is where this whole mess begins. Because in order to work out who blew up the pipes, you have to know why they were built in the first place. For literally hundreds of years, Germany has been kept warm by Russia. In the 16th century, the height of fashion for the wealthiest Europeans was soft, luxurious fur. Sable, marten, lynx, black foxes, beavers, sea otters. Even more common animals, squirrels mainly, were turned into affordable coats for average Europeans. To supply Western Europe with fur... The Russian Empire conquered land from the freezing Ural Mountains all the way to Alaska. Trails from Siberia to Germany were established by sledges full of furs being dragged thousands of kilometres through rough country. The Russians kept Europeans warm through the winter. And Russia kept supplying Europe with things they needed. Hemp for rigging ships, firewood meat and grain, and by the 20th century they had something else Germans wanted. Oil and gas. Shortages of oil and gas were causing chaos for the entire Western world. The West badly needs more supplies of energy for the future, while the Soviet Union economy needs a new source of income. But West Germany knew that at the other end of the trails etched by the sledges of the fur trade was a potential solution. The idea is to channel natural gas from the Siberian fields to consumers in Western Europe. It was a risky idea. Despite trading with Russia for hundreds of years, the relationship was stone cold. The US-allied West Germans came up with an idea they called Erstpolitik, or Eastern politics, to try and heal relations with the Soviet Union to their east. They hoped Erstpolitik would both deal with their energy problem and make another conflict between them and the Russians less likely that there would be a mutual dependence. You know, obviously German would, Germany would rely on Russian gas imports, but Russia would rely on the revenues generated from those exports. This is Dr James Henderson from Oxford University, an expert in Russian oil and gas. Germany saw this with a political hat on, but also with a commercial hat on. It, it could buy Russian gas in large amounts at relatively low cost and use it to power its economy. So there was this dual motivation. Germany gets cheap gas. Russia gets lots of money. Everybody wins, and winners are grinners, and grinners don't go to war with each other. So how do you get gas from Siberia to Munich? Very, very big, very, very long pipe. A connection between Russia and Germany that would tie their fates together. The Soviet gas pipeline was one of those projects which exhausted the superlatives. 
This wasn't the Nord Stream pipe that would eventually explode, but it had become one of the many pipes linking the two countries. And this pipe was massive. 4,800 kilometres long, pumping billions of cubic metres a year from the Siberian permafrost across the Urals to Western Europe, it was to be one of the engineering feats of the century. Germany suddenly had access to enormous amounts of cheap energy. So uh, we're talking steel manufacturing, we're talking fertilizers, chemicals, we are talking alumina smelters. Through the 1970s and 80s, European gas consumption tripled, and with more usage came more pipelines. Three quarters of their gas was now coming from the Soviet Union. But when the Soviet Union collapsed, it fractured into a bunch of smaller countries. And what was previously a direct pipeline that ran from the Soviet Empire to Germany was suddenly a pipeline that ran through a bunch of smaller countries. Poland, Belarus, Czechoslovakia and Ukraine. So when Ukraine became an independent country, it kind of inherited these assets essentially for free. All it had to do was maintain them. But why deal with a bunch of middlemen running ageing pipelines when you've got such good relations with Russia? The German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder had struck up a bit of a bromance with the new Russian president, Vladimir Putin. The two agreed to build a new pipe, directly from Russia to Germany. The now very famous Nord Stream pipeline. The leaders of four European nations have opened the valve and started the gas flowing through the world's longest undersea pipeline. In an indication that German politics and Russian gas were a bit too close... Gerhard Schroeder, Putin's man-friend who approved the pipe, immediately became the chairman of the Russian company building it. Which seems just a little icky. The multi-billion dollar Nord Stream project allows Russia to deliver natural gas directly to Germany. The Earth's politics strategy was to completely enmesh Germany with Russia. If Russia depends on Germany for money, they won't cause any problems. The sort of political drive and the kind of history of that politics around this German strategy. It had been a strategy the Germans had adopted for, for, you know, the best part of four decades and appeared to have worked. I mean, it is the same strategy that led Germany and France to start the European Union, and they haven't been at war since, so why wouldn't it work with Russia too? Pipes in place, Germany went in even harder on natural gas. By 2020, more than half of all German homes relied on natural gas for heating and hot water. They cut back on the use of coal and nuclear power plants for electricity and filled the gap with gas. Gas has played an increasing role in the power sector. Germans loved Nord Stream 1 so much that 10 years later they got a sequel. Nord Stream 2, Electric Boogaloo. And these are the two sets of pipes at the centre of our mystery. Once they were both open, Germany would finally be able to get as much gas as it wanted through the Baltic Sea, direct from Russia, with no middlemen to negotiate with. But Nord Stream 2 never opened. So, Germany's an unlikely suspect. They'd spent 40 years pursuing a gassy dream of peace through capitalism only to be left worrying whether they'd have enough gas to get through the winter. It's hard to find a motive. But that's how the pipes got there. Now we're across that, let's talk about some of the countries that do have a motive. Remember I said that after the Soviet Union fell, a bunch of new countries between Russia and Germany inherited the old pipes? Yeah, well, one of those was 
A crime has been committed against Ukraine, and we demand just punishment. Ukraine. Ukraine has a motive. It was never a fan of the Nord Stream pipelines. In fact, none of the countries being bypassed were. Why? Because they were enormous fans of the old pipes that Nord Stream was replacing. The ones that ran through their country. See, when something goes through your country, you get paid for it. So they get paid for every molecule, well, for every cubic metre of gas that's transported through their country. For Ukraine, the transit fees rake in more than a billion dollars a year. Charging Russia to move natural gas to Europe through Soviet-era pipelines has been a lucrative business for Kiev. On top of that cash, it also gave Ukraine a bit of political power. Essentially, Ukraine, if you like, could hold Russia hostage because it could, if it decided to, it could, it could turn the pipe off. It could refuse to transit Russian gas. Ukraine used this power to score cheap gas contracts of their own, buying Russian gas at a discounted price. So every year, and it was a kind of almost a tradition for Soviet and Russia-Ukraine watchers, every year around December, there would be this frantic negotiation around what's the price of gas for next year, what's the transit tariff, what's the agreement. Vladimir Putin made it clear one of the main reasons to build the Nord Stream pipes was to get rid of Ukraine's political power. He said Ukraine is our long-standing partner, a traditional one. Like any transit country, there's always a temptation to exploit its special position. I think this project means the market will become much more civil. And then there were the allegations that Ukraine was getting an extra special serving of gas. A five-finger discount of gas, if you know what I mean. You know... Gas fell off the back of the truck? Yes, I'm saying that Ukraine was stealing gas from Russia. Ukraine had a pretty good deal going. When Russia annexed Crimea in 2014, Germany said they supported Ukraine, but they still built Nord Stream 2. Many Ukrainians felt the new pipeline was a symbol of Germany's hypocrisy and betrayal. Ukraine hated the pipeline. It threatened to rob them of cash flow and the tiny amount of political influence they had over Russia. They certainly had a motive. And after the explosion, a source inside the German government told the media they couldn't rule out that Ukraine was responsible for the sabotage. But did they do it? Well, maybe. But there are other suspects. Like America. If the Ukrainian motive for hating Nord Stream was money, the American motive is jealousy. When the idea of Earth's politics started turning into action and construction began on pipelines, the US government actively tried to stop it. President Reagan fears that future European governments might become dependent on the Soviets for energy supplies, and that, they say, has serious implications for the global power game. The Cold War was still raging, and President Reagan really didn't want West Germany getting into bed with Moscow. He announced sanctions on any companies who got involved in building the pipes. But Europe just ignored him. Most of the European companies defiantly went ahead and fulfilled their contracts. Reagan tried to sort it out in his first presidential trip to Europe. He met with the leaders of Western European countries to try and convince them of his point of view. He met with the French, the Italians and the Germans. And at 10 Downing Street, he met with the woman one of his aides called his political soulmate, Margaret Thatcher. The Brits were deeply invested in the pipeline being built, 
A British company was involved in building the turbines, which would push the gas along the pipes. The meeting didn't go great. We've been a staunch friend to the United States, and we must continue to be. And naturally, we feel particularly deeply wounded by a friend. In the meeting, she called him a hypocrite for sanctioning gas, but not grain, which the US made money from by selling it to Moscow. It was the biggest row between the Western Allies since World War II. The Soviets were thrilled. President Reagan's tactics didn't only offend the Europeans, they also had the effect of handing the Russians a propaganda victory on a plate. The Soviets had a new customer and their enemies were bickering. Jackpot. The tension over this never really went away. American presidents from Reagan to Trump kept roasting them for it. I think it's a horrible thing that Germany's doing. I think it's a horrible mistake. And as much as I like Angela, I was very open in saying it. I think it's a horrible thing. Oil and gas are now by far Russia's biggest sources of national income. It's so important to Putin's regime that you can correlate his approval rating among Russians with the global oil price. Where you are feeding billions and billions of dollars from Germany primarily into the coffers of Russia when we're trying to do something so that we have peace in the world. Donald Trump emulated Ronald Reagan in putting sanctions on companies building pipelines. Though again, that did not slow the project down. By the time Joe Biden was in office, it was too late. By the time I became president, it was 90% completed and imposing Sanctions did not seem to make any sense. It made more sense to work with the Chancellor on finding out. The Americans have hated this growing relationship for decades. A close relationship between Russia and Europe, even if it's just a financial one, weakens America's influence over Europe. And as a major producer of LNG, liquefied natural gas, the US benefits from the detonation of the pipeline. American gas companies have made a killing exporting LNG to Europe since the invasion began. So America has a motive. And Joe Biden made it clear what he would do if Russia invaded Ukraine. If Russia invades, uh, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We we will bring an end to it. How will you you do that exactly, since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control? We will, uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. They have specialist equipment for this kind of work, they have explosives, they have a motive. Whether they did it or not, Vladimir Putin was quick to come out and directly accuse America of sabotage. Putin said it is a fact that they organised the attacks on the Nord Stream pipelines. It is clear who benefits from this, and of course, he who benefits did it. The Americans have denied attacking the pipeline. And to be frank, Joe Biden attacking infrastructure designed to supply energy to one of America's most important allies, Germany, seems extreme and quite out of character. Which leaves our next, final and frankly most suspicious suspect. Switzerland. I'm kidding, it wasn't Switzerland. The Russians. Putin's actions over the years have made him a suspect for almost anything. 
We know he orders assassinations. We know he orders invasions. We know he orders cyber attacks and sabotage. Many are accusing Russia of sabotage. Like the US, Russia has a fleet of submarines perfectly designed for this kind of work. Blowing up the pipe would be easy. There's only one party that's been weaponizing gas, and there's only one party that's been trying to terrorize Europe using uh, gas. Destroying these pipes had an instant effect on gas prices and made Europe's energy crisis seem much more dire. Germany had been trying to control Russia with money, but it could just as easily work the other way. Russia could try to control Germany with gas. And from the beginning of the invasion, Vladimir Putin wanted Western countries to stop sending money and weapons to Ukraine and to stop sanctioning Russia. Only five days before it exploded... Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said the world was a victim of Russian energy blackmailing. He said that Russia was deliberately making the Western world suffer for supporting Ukraine. Currently, oil and gas are Russia's energy weapons. And that is why it manipulates the markets so that electricity, gas, petrol and diesel become the privilege of few instead of being a common good available. To all. So Russia? Lots of motives. And Germany wasn't completely oblivious. They knew it was possible that Russia could withhold gas if they wanted to manipulate them. They've even come up with a solution. Germany built the largest gas storage facility in Europe under the tiny town of Reardon. The porous rock under Reardon can store, and I hate using this, everybody uses this measurement, but honestly I can't think of a better way. It's eight times the volume of Sydney Harbour. It could store two weeks' worth of Germany's gas, and it was just one of many storage facilities, theoretically blunting Moscow's ability to blackmail them. So Russia had motives. Germany had a backup plan. But here's the question. Does that mean Russia are the ones who blew up the pipes? The trail of clues begins in October 2021, when troops began to amass at the Ukrainian border. And it probably starts with a phone call from the Kremlin to the tallest building in Europe, the brand new St. Petersburg headquarters of gas company Gazprom. Gazprom is, like several Russian oil and gas companies, majority owned by the government. But all of these companies seem from the outside to be just normal profit-centred companies. Their boards and their leaders are driven to, to generate revenues for the government budgets uh, and also their own profits. They pay dividends to shareholders. You know, they've been owned by large international companies. Gazprom is the biggest natural gas company in the world, but its independence from the Kremlin is just an illusion. They are completely under the control of the Kremlin. And yet there was still optimism in Europe that the sheer size of Gazprom and the fat stacks of cash it brought into Russia each year would make the Kremlin think twice about getting in its way. When push comes to shove, Absolutely, uh, the Kremlin can do what it's like. But it turns out all those assumptions were wrong. And what it did, it stopped filling that storage. So it, it didn't use the storage in Europe that it had leased. The Kremlin called Gazprom and told them to throttle back the amount of gas it was piping into Europe through Nord Stream and the overland routes through Ukraine. Anger is mounting in Europe as nations watch their gas prices spike and they're pointing the finger at Russia. Some analysts believe it's deliberately withholding additional supplies to drive prices up. Gazprom cut back on how much gas it was sending to Europe by about 10%. On top of that, I mean, this is probably the craziest part of all. You know that 
giant underground storage facility in Reardon, the biggest one in Western Europe. Gazprom owned it. And what it did, it stopped filling that storage. So it, it didn't use the storage in Europe that it had leased. Germany had sold their backup plan to Putin. Prices were rising and there was less gas in storage than people were expecting because the whole thing was quite opaque. No one really realised what had happened until it was too late. So clue number one, Russia had already been holding back gas from Germany. Now, when Germany saw the troop build-up on the Ukrainian border and saw the gauge on their gas storage was perilously low, they tried to stop Putin from invading. They did it with a threat. The German Chancellor said they would not open Nord Stream 2 if Russian troops crossed the border. It didn't work. Putin called their bluff, and in February, his army marched into Ukraine. Western companies announced sanctions against Russian banks, companies, politicians and oligarchs. But their biggest energy customers, led by Germany, hesitated to sanction Russian gas. In the first months of the war, Germany paid Gazprom more than $100 million a day to keep the gas flowing. Some of that money went directly to Putin's war effort. Eventually, after months of our TV screens being filled with evidence of horrific war crimes and atrocities, Germany agreed to phase out Russian gas by mid-2024, two years' time. Putin responded by turning the tap off on Nord Stream 1. Russia has suspended natural gas flows through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline and won't say when they'll resume. Russia is further reducing its gas flows to Europe, blaming maintenance for the drop. The German president, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, who had been one of the biggest driving forces behind expanding the gas relationship, realised he had been wrong for decades. He said he should have taken the warnings more seriously. He said supporting Nord Stream 2 was a mistake. It cost them a lot of credibility in Eastern European countries. Nothing can go back to normal while Putin remains president of Russia. So clue number two. Russia had turned off the gas in Nord Stream 1. This was the situation when the pipes exploded. No gas was flowing through any of the Nord Stream pipes. Putin was already blackmailing Germany to try and get them to stop supporting Ukraine. So why blow up the pipes? Just to make it clear he was serious? Was it a warning? making it clear that all energy infrastructure around the world was potentially a target. Maybe. This is the point where Hercule Poirot usually dramatically points to the person you'd least expect and identifies them as the culprit. But I'm not Hercule Poirot. I don't know who blew up these pipes. Investigations are underway and maybe they'll finally bring Switzerland to justice. But more important than finding the culprit is understanding what the repercussions are for the rest of the world, and regular people like you and me. Since Germany announced they were going to phase out Russian gas, the volume of Russian gas flowing into the European Union as a whole has plummeted by more than two-thirds. Germany is snapping up gas anywhere they can, which is making gas more expensive around the world. Regular people just can't afford it. Already... We've got older people who are turning their heating off, so reducing the amount of water they're using, not using their appliances at home to try and save money so they can feed themselves. France is banning outdoor heating at cafes and giving school students warm coats. Germany is turning off pool heaters. 
Most countries are switching off floodlights on big monuments and setting air conditioners to a maximum of 19 degrees. People don't know where it's going to stop. You know, it's, um, it's actually pretty, pretty bad. Around the world, we're seeing higher energy prices, higher food prices and higher inflation, including here in Australia. But Germany is holding strong. A warm autumn has helped it store enough gas to see it through the next few months. Other European countries have done the same. They're making savings and making plans. They're supporting Ukraine in their own way, paying extra for petrol and heating and iceberg lettuce without demanding we just let Putin win to bring down prices. Ukrainian-Canadian global affairs analyst Michael Bosicu thinks that in Europe, the support for Ukraine will continue. They realise how important that is, that they're ready to make the sacrifice, whether it's, you know, taking shorter hot showers or turning off your lights earlier. They're willing to do it uh, this winter uh, because they're seeing day by day what a beast, what a menace uh, Vladimir Putin is, and uh, we have to stand up to him. So, checkmate, right? Putin tried to blackmail Europe. Europe called his bluff. Do you think that, in some ways, he was relying on that Europe cracking... And do you think that's one of the biggest mistakes he's made? Uh, no, I don't. I, I, think, I don't think he would regard himself as having made a mistake at all. And I think that we do not know if he has made a mistake yet because we have not been in the critical part of the year. The critical part of the year being winter. Germany is prepared for this winter, but what about next winter and the one after that? Do you think if Europe can survive one winter without cracking, then they'll get through the rest? Or is this the first of many scary winters for Europe? It's probably the first of at least two or three scary winters for Europe because, essentially, as you'll know, being in Australia, development of LNG projects takes a significant amount of time, four or five years. So no new sources of gas. And on top of that, by the end of winter... Europe's gas storage will be empty. So that's not normally a problem. During the summer, you would then refill storage. Except next summer, there's no Russian gas. Then filling your storage is very, very difficult because there's not enough LNG in the world to suddenly replace all that Russian gas. So then we get into next winter, 23-24, and storage levels are are nowhere near 90%. And so then we have a problem. Vladimir Putin says the one remaining Nord Stream pipe that didn't get blown up is ready to rock and roll whenever Germany wants it. He'd love it if European support for Ukraine cracked this winter, if they opened up the pipe and let the gas flow, but he can wait. Next winter, or the winter after that, would work for him too. But in terms of Mr Putin's understanding of the energy industry, his PhD was in the energy industry and the role of the Russian state and Russian companies in the the global energy industry. So he is very, very well briefed. And anyone you ever meet who goes to talk to him about the energy industry always comes away hugely impressed with how much he knows. The ramifications of this gas war are affecting more than just Europe, though. Spare a thought, not for Europeans who can afford this stuff, but for the Sri Lankans, Pakistanis, you know, the developing world that has been looking to at, to at gas as a potential future cleaner source of energy to displace coal and who are not only can't afford it, but, you know, they're literally running short. Like energy is now in short supply. And in Ukraine, the situation is dire. I think what we've seen, the kind of 
uh, modus operandi of the Russians is to destroy civilian infrastructure. Putin is trying to make sure Ukrainians struggle through the winter by destroying their power stations. They've attacked nuclear power stations and the gas plants they use for citywide central heating. Half of Ukrainians live in homes heated by Soviet-era steam pipes. A lot of folks probably don't realise this, but a lot of the heating systems in Ukraine are quite old and they're above ground. So those heating pipes flow from building to building above ground, which makes them very susceptible to you know, missiles and artillery, incoming fire. Ukraine is getting hammered. Europe is scrambling. Poorer countries are suffering. The war in Ukraine has turned the global energy market upside down. It's forced people in Manila and Melbourne to compete directly with people in Munich and Manchester for a limited supply of gas. There are, of course, some winners. Energy, gas and mining companies, chiefly. And fossil fuel exporters like Australia, who are making bank on the back of rising prices. But there are a lot more losers. And it's all happening because one man wanted to destroy Ukraine, and so far, everyone else is unwilling to back down. Whether we like it or not, we've all been dragged into this distant war. We're supporting Ukraine. But prices are soaring and winter is coming. How long will our resolve hold? This episode was written by me, Matt Bevan. Our series producers are Yasmin Parry and Will Ockenden. Next episode, Russia is the one place on Earth where gas is still incredibly cheap. They're basically giving it away or just burning it off into the atmosphere. For some Russians, it's an upside to the invasion. Some Russians actually see several upsides. But there is an undercurrent of disapproval, one that's becoming louder and more mainstream. And now that Vladimir Putin has introduced conscription, has he done the one thing that will turn the Russian people against him for good? That's next on Russia If You're Listening.